Welcome to State of the 38th. I'm your host, Alex Weissman. Today we're doing a new type of episode where we round up the news. So for the first time on the pod, I have a co-host, Henry Ediger. Henry, say hi. Hi. So today we'll be covering Denver news, Colorado news, and national news. So Henry, you want to kick us off? Sure. So first in Denver news, there's been some controversy over the Denver Public Library Central Branch hiring social workers. Many have seen it becoming more of a homeless shelter than a library as uh, homeless people come to the library to use the restrooms and other resources at the library. And hiring social workers has made that more prevalent. So there's been some controversy around this. yeah. Yes, there are basically two arguments. And it's important to know that like the library was a natural place for homeless people to go because of internet and bathrooms, and so they started providing social workers in response to that. But the problem that some people see is that that means that more homeless people are there. So if you're arguing that the library should help homeless people, there are like two prevalent arguments. One is that the library is a good place to provide social services, which makes sense. Um, Another one is that the library should continue to provide social services, but it should try to stop the violent and criminal activity which is happening at the library. That's the position that this Denver Post editorial took, which was much better written, I thought, than the editorial we'll talk about in a minute. Um, But if you're arguing against the library, then... You like there's there's two arguments basically. There's one argument that we shouldn't provide help to homeless people, which no one is really taking. I think I haven't read anything that's like you know homeless people mm-hmm. should be on the street. But then there's this like secretly same sort of argument where people say we should be providing help to homeless people not in the library. So the big instances which people cite for. This would be fights that have happened and drug overdoses in the bathroom. This Denver Post editorial points this like really dystopic vision of how the library is working, <laughs> where there's like people overdosing on heroin in the park. Um, I, I don't know if that's happening, but it seems like it might be. I mean, that said, there have been enough overdoses in the library that they now have narcan on hand in order to reverse opiate overdoses so yeah there is definitely drug use in the library so um michael hancock who's our mayor said that in an interview basically off the cover he like would not send his kids to the library which people got really upset about anyway michael hancock eventually walked back those comments and basically said like you know the library is for everybody but we should enforce laws so like people shouldn't be fighting and people shouldn't be doing drugs so henry what's your take on this so i agree with the mission of the library or the intended goal to provide help to homeless people i think it's a little unclear how well that has worked and there is also something to be said for creating a more dangerous environment at the library. Uh, so even if Michael Hancock did make some contentious comments about not sending his children there, there are other people who have begun not boycotting, but 
not going to the library because of this. So I probably agree with the decision in the end. What? what, what I, I agree that the library should provide social services, but yeah, I don't. I'm not a huge fan of like some people say like, oh, you know, that we should we should have these services, but we should have it elsewhere. And that just sort of seems like a cop out to me. It just seems like you know, white people being like, "Oh, I don't want to like I want to help homeless people, but I don't want to see homeless people, homeless people yeah, being that helped." Makes sense. And so I get like like obviously we should enforce laws, and there, there there's actually been a pretty big there, there will be a bond passage in the next election, which will expand the library's budget enough so that we can keep the like the bookshelves lower. So that like there's more visibility, so that people like aren't being attacked in bookshelves, which I had never thought of before. But now it's like terrifying for me to be in bookshelves. Mm-hmm. Um, I was at the Central Library the other day actually, and I was at, like I had already like read a little bit about this and heard about it, and I was surprised just by the number of homeless people. Um, but I think like yeah, they should be getting help. The library seems like a convenient place to do it. Um, so as long as we're enforcing laws, I don't really think it's a problem. What you'll hear other people say is, oh, we need to just establish some other sort of center for homeless people. And I just don't know where that would be. I just, like if, if there was an actual plan, as opposed to people like theoretically throwing mm-hmm. that out there, I would be much more in favor of it. The other part of the debate is people saying that this uh, has ended up diverting funds from the library's intended purpose of like providing books and such. Because now they have plans to hire more security guards and oh, install yeah. as many as 70 security cameras. So it uh, definitely is diverting funds. But but I mean, if the bond passage gets through, then, shouldn't matter. then there's no problem. So. Then you just have more money to spend on security. Let's move on to the most fun topic, which I think we'll talk about today. Because we mm-hmm. get to read this really terrible and robust <laughs> article and go into, some, in, into the weeds in Denver's and Colorado's tax policy. So the Colorado Convention Center is that building downtown with the blue bear on it. And Denver is becoming a more popular city. People love traveling here. But the problem is that the Colorado Convention Center is not big enough. So there was a bond passage in 2015, I think, to give $104 million to expand the CCC. But a bid came out for $233 million. So more than double. So, Henry, why don't you explain what the city is doing to raise that extra revenue? So, one of the options, like the obvious option to raise extra money for something like this would be to raise taxes. But the problem is that that is not actually possible for the city to do uh, because the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, or TABOR, says that uh, you can't raise taxes without everyone agreeing uh, beyond just uh, like the rate of inflation. So, and, and the rate of population. Yeah, growth. the rate of population growth. Um, so Denver can't really raise taxes, especially to make up that uh, you know $120 million that they're missing here. So their solution is to create a special taxation district, a... Uh, a tourism, tourism investment tourism district. investment district which allows them to raise taxes without telling people or without passing by a supermajority through the legislature yeah so 
it, it's important to realize that like this wouldn't be a problem if we didn't have this really stupid taxpayer bill of rights. So what the tourism investment district would essentially do is that it wouldn't raise taxes on Denver citizens. It would raise lodging taxes, but rather than having to do that through a bond measure, the tourism investment district or TID would just have a vote among hotel owners in the TID. So you would just need a majority of hotels to approve for a higher lodging tax. And the idea is if the convention center is driving much more traffic through hotels, then hotels are probably going to want the idea. Uh, they're probably Which going is, to want that. In, they would be willing to take the increase in taxes for the increase in revenue. And some estimates by the government say that there's like potentially $80 million in revenue per year. So if you do the math, that's only a few years, like, like three years before the Colorado Convention Center pays itself back. I mean, that said, the money would not all go to the hotel owners, but they still stand to gain from voting. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So, anyway, there are two opinions on this. Henry, why don't you just explain what those are? Okay. Or, I, mean, I guess there's like four, there's like one opinion for the CCC upgrade, and there's like a several so, yeah, against. The reason all of for the like. convention center upgrade is just that it would bring in an estimated $80 million in revenue a year. Um, and then there are several arguments against it. Yeah. So. Yeah. So the Denver Post editorial board, which I think it's safe to say carries a little bit of too much weight in Colorado politics, since it's you know the biggest paper in the state, and everybody reads it. Um, they came out against this, but they have essentially three arguments. Do you agree that this was like one of the worst written arguments you've ever read? Yeah, a lot of it doesn't make a ton of sense. So. So we're just going to read three sections of the three arguments. I'd encourage all of our readers to go and or all of our listeners to go and read it themselves, but we'll go through this and just outline what their points are. So the first argument says that the convention center is a huge economic force and the city wants to win the prestige of attracting the lucrative outdoor retailer show, which we definitely should have, by the way, because this mm -hmm. is a Boulder-based company. Uh, but Colorado's largest city doesn't need to pave the way for another special taxing district. We already have plenty, and it's debatable whether all of them are in the broader best interest. There are business improvement districts, metropolitan districts, general improvement districts, and urban renewal districts, all of which have been granted taxing authority once created. When does it stop, Henry? When does it stop? <laughs> so I think this argument is pretty nonsensical, just because especially at the point where it's just hotel owners who are going to be voting on this. It's not really like the government is placing some ridiculous restriction on everyone, nor does it really result in an increase in something like income taxes. Uh, it affects like a pretty small number of people here. So I think that's already ridiculous. And beyond that, we have the editorial board talking about this side. Uh, this like big bureaucracy here where we set up numerous districts, but just kind of generally talks about different taxation districts. So, and it does not outline why that's bad. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> so, so let's move on to I'll argument two. <laughs> you want to read it? 
Okay, so the editorial board writes that, quote, meanwhile, people already are flocking to Denver as one of the nation's go-to places. Everywhere, costs are through the roof and challenges with them. Many of the city's urban jewels, like the 16th Street Mall, are being degraded by the opioid epidemic and related vagrancy issues the city still doesn't have under control. And what about the areas of the city that aren't downtown? Affordable housing? Every new tax increase detracts from possible future city investments. Okay, this, this, this is where this article... Like, like, I get the idea, like, okay, taxing districts probably are undemocratic and probably aren't the best way to do taxes or whatever. This does not make any sense. Blaming more people coming to Denver on our urban jewels, quote, being degraded by the opioid epidemic and related vacancy issues. So I actually see the editorial sense. board contradicting themselves at least twice just in these few sentences. First off, it doesn't make sense that more people are coming to Denver if our urban jewels are being degraded. And second off, they seem to be implying here that we need more taxes or at least more expenditure in order to fix our urban jewels. Uh, right after they talk about how we already have some extremely complicated bureaucratic mess regarding taxes. This also just goes against the conventional wisdom beside, beca- uh, behind trying to get tourists to come to a city. And the idea is that there have been a lot of studies that say that when there are more tourists in a city, there's some sort of camaraderie that's formed among the locals in the city where they try and keep the city up. So if we had a lot more tourists in downtown Denver, then it would mean that we would be more likely to clean up downtown Denver because we want to show that our city is beautiful. So this doesn't really make any sense. Um, Then they totally... So so It also doesn't make sense to say that taxing essentially hotels would somehow detract from investment in, you know, like developing the 16th Street Mall or... Yeah, fixing the opioid epidemic. Yeah, no, it doesn't make it, it doesn't make any sense. Like, if we're bringing in more revenue, it's more revenue that we can spend on things. If there are eighty yeah, million yeah, more dollars true, so. in Colorado per year, then that's eighty million more taxable revenue dollars that we can spend. So that those were two paragraphs consecutively, by the way. So if the transition <laughs> didn't make any sense, it didn't to us either. <laughs> This is their third argument. No doubt. The new convention center plans are a good investment of public dollars. So why not let the voters decide? This is totally out of left field. Except, I guess it sort of stems from the first argument. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's just sort of naive for the Denver editorial board to acknowledge, earlier in the editorial, they acknowledge the downsides of this crazy taxpayer bill of rights law that we have. But then they don't recognize the political downside towards trying to get voters to Im- to boost taxes on themselves. Like, if, either you want it or you don't. If you want it, you want to do it through the path of least resistance, which is just establishing this tourism investment district. If you don't want it, then I guess maybe you make all of these, you know, unrelated arguments and see what sticks, but... And then, yeah, this just seems like kind of a cop-out after they make arguments against it. Uh, Beyond that, I don't think it makes a ton of sense because what's actually happening here is people would still vote given the special district. Like, the hotel owners would still vote, so... Yeah, it's it's not entirely undemocratic. It's not like the city council establishes a dictatorship under the 16th Street Mall. (laughs) (laughs) So. So anyway, what's your take, Henry? Um, well, I think the editorial board 
this editorial makes very little sense to me. <laughs> I dissect the arguments here. Uh, I'm pretty in favor of the establishment of the tourism investment district, just given that it isn't, you know, it isn't like a an autocratic decision here. A vote still happens, so even if the hotel owners don't want the extra revenue over the next several years, uh, like, you know, it won't pass. So yeah, I think that there are some legitimate questions here. Like, why did the city think this would cost $103 million when it actually costs $230 million? million. But if we still agree that there's going to be a lot of revenue, then it probably makes sense for us to invest in expanding it, especially so that we can get the Outdoor Retailers Expo or whatever. Mm. So that's what the city's missing. Let's move on to Colorado News. Um, so recently in Firestone, there was an explosion uh, from an oil line that ended up killing two people. So Governor Hickenlooper called this a freak accident, uh, which prompted a few different investigations into this, uh, which revealed that there have actually been 116 fires and explosions at oil and gas operations in the last Eight years. So just to clarify, this was a little bit of an unlucky coincidence for Governor Hickenlooper because it didn't prompt these studies. The Colorado School of Public Health was already investigating this. And then what happened after they found that there were 116 fires and explosions was that Governor Hickenlooper realized that it might not be a freak accident. So he called for an investigation on every single oil and gas line to see how close it is to houses. Because if an oil and gas line is close to a house, then they will it's more likely to explode and when it or it's the same likelihood of explosion but it's more likely to kill somebody yeah um so the report says that the main causes of incidents from the cogcc which is like the colorado uh gas conservation something it's the organization tasked with quantifying these sort of things the main causes of the recorded incidents were 20% 20% equipment failure, 14% lightning strikes, operation error, 9%. Um, a lot were unclear. Oil and natural gas explosions are not uncommon, but relative to Utah and Texas, who have, I mean, I guess Utah is probably a better comparison because they think they have comparable numbers of oil and gas lines. Uh, Colorado has more deadly explosions. And what it looks like Governor Hickenlooper thinks is that that might be because we don't have enough regulations that make oil and gas lines away from houses and populated areas. So what does the report suggest, Henry? Uh, Well, it suggests that uh, required reporting of all fires and explosions at oil and gas operations in Colorado aligning with the laws in other states, including Utah and Texas. Okay, yeah, um, so it indicates that there's no actual database run by the government that exists, but organizations such as the Colorado uh, School of Public Health uh, and other government agencies have collected the data, so it's a little disorganized, at least, uh, which is presumably why Hickenlooper made the comment about it being a freak accident. Um, Beyond that, it seems there's something... It seems like you don't actually have to report these explosions in every instance. It's only if 
Yeah, it's only it actually results harm in someone, which doesn't make so. any sense because an explosion that does not harm someone, it, it's just an explosion so. that harms someone minus people. Like you, you're still having the mm-hmm. potential for more explosions. Um, so the report essentially went to Governor Hickenlooper. He he ordered this report back in early May, and he just got it earlier this week. Um, so the report provides location data for flow lines and pipeline associated with wells within 1,000 feet of a home. On a statewide basis, it verifies that all existing flow lines or pipelines are not in use, have been abandoned pursuant to state regulations. So essentially, it's just going through and making sure that this is up to state law. Um, Mark flow lines or pipelines that are not in service with fluorescent paint statewide. Remove all valves from the lines that's not in use statewide. Cap the line as a temporary measure with a deadline of June 30th to cut the line and seal it underground statewide. Energy companies have a June 30th deadline to pressure test all flow lines within 1,000 feet of a home to ensure they have integrity. That is probably the most consequential and most burdensome regulation that this report is putting on gas and oil companies if you care about how much the gas and oil companies are struggling. Uh, The COGCC has told operators it will accept results of pressure tests completed since November 1st, 2016 in order to satisfy all aspects of that order. So it also does sound like this might take a bit of time because even though the report like compiles data on the GPS coordinates of wells and flow lines, it still takes time to examine them, make sure that abandoned lines are in compliance with all of our regulations there, which is uh, another part of this report and then actually like painting them and stuff like that. So what do you think about this? debacle i, I don't well, really know i think it, to call, to call it's this. a little surprising to me that there have been so many explosions in the last several years this seems like something that would be getting a lot more coverage uh, yeah i guess it took the two people getting killed in firestone to become a big deal but yeah i mean i think that what go- like governor hagan sounds like he did the right thing i'm not super in the weeds on like oil and gas policy but i'm assuming that like checking all of them is probably the right call um what i don't like is it seems like if you read this ryan warner interview about this issue with the guy who ran the 2006-2015 study for the colorado school of public health he keeps trying to make this a political thing and say like do you think the firestone thing was a freak accident and if i was governor and you told me that two people died in an explosion i probably would say that's a freak accident i agree but But it seems like he did the right thing and like is trying to make it not happen as much anymore so i still agree with his response now that it's a little bit more clear that it was not a freak accident so yeah it's probably a good thing okay Let's move on to politics. Um, so there are a lot of gubernatorial candidates right now, and um, I don't really know what a gubernatorial election looks like at this point because it's like 2017, mm-hmm. and no one and everyone's a little exhausted from elections. It seems like, but so the 2018 election will see a new governor no matter what because Hickenlooper is term limited. So we have Noel Ginsburg, who's a businessman and some sort of social entrepreneur, uh, civil rights activist, I think. Mike Johnston, who's the former state senator, he was the principal of a high school in Colorado. Uh, Carrie Kennedy, who we know because our class, it's our classmate's mom, uh, former state treasurer, 
Ed Perlmutter, who's U.S. representative, and Eric Underwood, who is a businessman and was a Republican in Georgia and lost and lost the Senate election for the Georgia 10th, it looks like. George Brockler, and then on the Republican side, there's George Brockler, who's the Arapahoe County District Attorney. He got national attention for prosecuting James Holmes. Uh, so mm-hmm. he's a he, he looks like the front runner. I, I haven't seen any polls yet because I don't really know how you poll an election that nobody's paying attention to. But, That's also true. But he, of the Republicans that are also listed here, has, it seems like, the most sway. So Luke Gator, who's the Laramie County Commissioner, Victor Mitchell, who's a state representative, Doug Robinson, who's a businessman, and who, I'm going to look this up right now so I can verify it. I think I saw something about how he's like Mitt Romney's nephew. Oh, okay. Which is sort of That's crazy. Cool. Um, and then Joanne De Silva, who's a retired banker. Uh, so something happened in the gubernatorial election, which I guess we probably could have expected. Okay, yeah. Doug Robinson is Mitt Romney's nephew. If any but Cool. Yeah, good fun fact. So, so what happened this week with, uh, or why don't you just read this Rasmussen report thing so that we get an idea of what the gubernatorial election looks like? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this just gives a pretty exhaustive list. So uh, the report says that while the 2018 atmosphere might be advantageous for Democrats based on history, Centennial State Republicans could have a strong candidate field seeking to replace outgoing Governor John Hickenlooper. Uh, George Brockler, a suburban Denver district attorney who gained prominence prosecuting James Holm after his 2012 theater shooting in Aurora, is running. State Treasurer Walker Stapleton and State Attorney General Cynthia Kaufman, both Republican, are eyeing the race, though Kaufman could run for re-election instead. Uh, and then lastly, ex-state representative Victor Mitchell, also Republican, can self-fund, and he just reported giving his campaign $3 million. The leading Democrat looks like Ed Perlmutter right now, uh, though former state treasurer Kerry Kennedy, who Stapleton beat by 1.4 points in 2010, and ex-state Senator Mike Johnston are also running. Representative Jared Polis, Democrat, who is personally wealthy, could also run. Uh, Colorado leans a tad left these days, but the prospect of a strong Republican candidate and possible fatigue after three straight Democratic terms suggests to us that neither side starts as a favorite. Yeah, so there are like, aside from the fatigue from Democratic rule, which I don't really know because Colorado is doing pretty well, like economy-wise, so it'll be interesting to see whether or not this becomes like a change election. There's also way less of that like that kind of fatigue than you would see from from a national several election. yeah like several terms of a republican or democratic president so um and so there's also low midterm turnout just generally for democrats but that might not be true in 2018 because democrats are pretty upset with the current administration so they might mm. go to the polls to vote for house elections and just vote down ballot which means that the gubernatorial candidate would be democrat one candidate seems to have pulled ahead in the Democratic primary, and surprise, surprise, it's the establishment candidate, Representative Ed Perlmutter. He received the endorsement of a prominent local union, Local 208, which I believe is a piping union, and they said that Ed Perlmutter has always been good to pipe workers of America, so... What do you think, Henry? Do you think this will give him the, the uh, governorship? I think it helps. It looks like... I mean, he's the first candidate to have this kind of support. Um, I don't really know what it means to be, like, I don't know what he's done to be good to pipe workers in Colorado, but um, presumably the local 208 chose him because they think he'll win, so they've supported the candidate that'll win. Uh, 
But that's, you know, I don't yeah. really know how important this is. So. I mean, like, no union in Colorado is going to vote Republican. So this only is consequential for the primary. And what it shows is that Representative Ed Perlmutter, who probably has the most national attention of anybody on the Democratic side because he is a representative, it looks like he's pulling ahead of Mike Johnston and Kerry Kennedy, both of which are seen as his number one or number one and two competitors. Um, but, you know, it is really early, so we just wanted to give you guys this update because... And then, yeah, I mean, his primary competitor is probably Mike Johnston, as he was a former state senator, so he's received similar attention. Um, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. is isn't currently, but... So now we have our special segment where we break down one national issue and impact it out to Colorado. So welcome to From D.C. to Denver. Um, what happened in the Rose Garden so, earlier this yeah, week? President Donald Trump recently announced that he is having the United States withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord despite uh, other G7 leaders, every other G7 leader, recommitting to the Paris Climate Accords. Um... So, yes, first, we'll summarize what the Paris Climate Accords are. So this was an agreement in late 2015 and early 2016 between 190 countries to bring down global CO2 emissions. The only two countries that did not join were Nicaragua and Syria. Nicaragua didn't commit to it because they felt it lacked an enforcement mechanism. So really just Syria, who is currently in the middle of a civil war. So um, not super contentious. Uh, so it just required the U.S. to meet its nationally determined contributions towards reducing emissions globally and implied cooperation on climate change between uh, different countries, the big players being the U.S. and China, uh, also India as the world's largest emitter. Um, um, so you probably know a little bit more about like the weeds of the Paris Climate Accords than I do. What would the United States like have to spend in the Paris Accords? Uh, so I can't really give like a hard number for what the United States would have to spend. I know the emissions reductions target by 2030 was, I think, 30%. Uh, with the Trump presidency, it was expected to be 17%. So, um, you know, one of the interesting things here with Trump's decision is that there isn't anything binding about the Paris Agreement. It was just kind of like a uh, an agreement to reduce emissions. Um, there's not really any like hard repercussion, like I guess you know global sway, like political capital. I mean, he could have just not. Yeah, I think a dick about it. I think he should have just stayed in, John, made the seventeen percent yeah. reductions, and just said, you know, we didn't meet our goal, but we did something. So I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I don't really see any benefit to be gained here, given that emissions reductions will happen as renewables are becoming increasingly competitive um, with like fossil fuel and coal. So really the only thing Donald Trump has done is made us look weaker on a global scale and caused several countries to already state that they're just going to bypass Trump and go straight to businesses in America. So functionally nothing happened except now everyone hates America because countries like, for example, North Korea are taking a more progressive stance on climate change. Pretty easy for them to reduce their <laughs> yeah, emissions. That's though. true. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> Donald Trump decided to withdraw from the Accords, and this is what's important to know about that process. So, first of all, withdrawing takes three years. Um, and so, what would wind up happening is that Donald Trump would officially withdraw at, like, the end of his presidential term, assuming, like, praying to God 
email <laughs> that it's only a one-term presidency. Um, he said he would re-enter the agreement after negotiations, which is bullshit. <laughs> He's not going to do that. Um, it's also a little unclear what that means. It's just odd given that the U.S. and China like spearheaded the Paris Accords in 2015 and 2016, and now we're seeing... Trump withdraw and then say he's going to renegotiate, which again is really odd given how non-binding it was. Yeah, so. I mean, it was basically an agreement like we all acknowledge that climate change is real and that we will bring down CO2 emissions. So, and just because this is an explanatory podcast or whatever, the way that climate change works is... <laughs> Just, just, just kidding. We're not going to do that this episode. Yeah. I'll edit that part out. Um, so here's what happened in Colorado in response. So Colorado already is investing in renewable energy. Withdrawing from the agreement will have little effect on Colorado's energy production, barring a Republican administration in the, in, in the governorship. Um, so, and even then probably very little impact because Colorado businesses are already switching. There's cities that are saying they will be 100% renewable by like 2020 or 2030. I know mm -hmm. Pueblo and Oh yeah, Aurora it's also important to note that the Paris climate agreements wouldn't have uh, started until 2020, which is when Trump would officially withdraw. But anyways, yeah, that's yeah. Um so politically this is what so so because the Paris accords aren't binding and because most of the changes happening is market forces anyway colorado is not going to see a huge increase in co2 emissions unless we specifically make it a priority to so if we opened up public lands to oil and gas drilling which would never happen because it'd be horribly unpopular in the state we will not see an increase in co2 emissions but so the most important impacts for Colorado are political. So Democrats are seizing the opportunity on Donald Trump because if you remember from the episode we did with Audrey Wheeler of Conservation Colorado, these issues poll extremely well in Colorado. So for instance, in a poll according to Colorado College, 69% of Coloradans want to see the government protect air, land, and water for a better environment. And 77% support more solar and wind energy on public lands. And so that's pretty transferable. If you support renewable energy on public lands, you probably support it on private lands also. So Democrats recognize that this is a pretty big issue for Republicans in the state who are seen as not helping the environment. Republicans, there's only been a couple of Republican responses on the state level from this. The RNC sent out this memo that was like, this is great. But Mike Kaufman, who is the representative from the Colorado 6th, who's extremely, extremely vulnerable, like how he won his election, uh, we don't really know, seemed worried about the accords and wanted, he, he, he basically stressed the renegotiation part and said like, you know, it's good that we will renegotiate to get a better deal for America, which is like a pretty easy political line to toe, except it makes it seem like you just go with the president on anything. So, um, yeah. I also think that on a national level, this was a an extremely bad political move for Trump to make. We've already seen Elon Musk uh, leave Trump's advisory panel because oh, no. of this. Um, yeah, I mean, so maybe that's not super important, but I think this is bad given that not only in Colorado, but most Americans do want to see the United States as part of the Paris 
packed. Yeah, uh, only 31% of, I, and I don't remember where I saw that, but I'll put it in the show notes, I guess. But only 31% of Americans wanted to leave the Paris Accords. So a small amount, and then given that this is already reducing its popularity at a time when doesn't have much popularity to spare, uh, like that's not a good thing, and then this will come back in three years when he's looking for re-election, uh, when he actually leaves, if that happens. So either he renegotiates and re-enters, in which case... Uh, you know, I guess that's good because environmentally probably positive consequences or he doesn't and he's made an extremely unpopular decision essentially towards the end of his first term. So, yeah. So if you want to check out more about environmentalism in Colorado, be sure to check out our podcast with Audrey Wheeler of Conservation Colorado, where we deep dive the politics and policy of the issues. Um, and I'll put those in the show notes. So... Uh, we don't have a closing thing to say. Adios. That, that's the state of the <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>